<laughs> okay, now we come to the heart of why we're here, to hear from the Lord. And uh, Rob will bring uh, a message to us shortly. We're going to read this morning from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Now, just to say that even though there are many prophets throughout the scriptures, Isaiah is perhaps considered to be one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's quoted more than 50 times in the New Testament. And we are able to see that many of the promises that God gave him or gave us through Isaiah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, therefore making him a wonderful prophet. That said, let's read from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, which is entitled Isaiah's Commission. And it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell his people, tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Thank you, Kevin. You know, growing our church and filling these seats every Sunday, even one day having to extend the size of our sanctuary, is a prayer and a dream of every believer, every member. It's something on the agenda of almost every elders meeting, I can assure you. 
It's something we consider in prayer meetings, something we pray about. And we want to do this not so we can take pride in being part of a big church, but because a full church is a sign of the very kingdom of God is growing and that folk are coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior and that men and women and young people are growing in their faith. But some say, you know, this business about growing your church, surely that's the job of the minister and even the elders. But that's, that's a foolish question. It misses the important fact that church growth and evangelism is the work of every single believer. In a number of passages in the, in the New Testament, Jesus commands his disciples, and through them he commands us, to take this good news of the cross to everyone we meet. Let's refresh ourselves on one or two verses. And if you've got your Bible open, you can turn to some of them. But I'm not going to slow down. You'll have to get there quickly. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 18 and onwards. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Luke talks about it as well in a slightly different way from Luke chapter 24. Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You, he says, are witnesses to these things. Again, Luke, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8, says this. Jesus speaking to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven. He says, all power will be, will, you will receive all power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Even John at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 15, in fact, during those, those hours when he's spending with these disciples before Gethsemane, says this, Jesus says, When the Advocate comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And then the important words, And you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. It is not the minister's job alone, to grow the church. The minister has his own evangelism to do, as do ev does every officer of this church. I've just been reading some of the work of Martin Luther. Martin Luther says a minister ought to do only two things. The words, the word and the sacraments. The, the minister's job is to preach the word and to administer baptism and holy communion. Yes, there are a few other things that he will do as well, weddings and funerals and things like that. But sometimes I think we tie our ministers down with so many tasks. They're there to preach the word. I'd like to look a little more deeply into this, into our role in growing our church. And this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm actually going to look at Old Testament passages, just to be a wee bit different about it, if you like. And the Lord has certainly led me to these passages. It's very clear, as I've been reading, how these, these passages have just gotten so much more, I don't know... What's the feeling when a passage just begins to weigh heavy on you? I don't know what the best words are, but it just, it just seems to, to say something more to you than normal. And this passage from Isaiah 6 does that. It's about the call of God in our lives. 
I've met, I've met many believers who say, but I don't feel a call to do evangelism. And that's a statement that we need to investigate. There is indeed, amongst Paul's writing, a very specific gift of evangelism that he talks about amongst all the other gifts of the Spirit. And that specific gift to preach and to evangelize seems to be given to a select few, or certainly not to that many. Whether it be Billy Graham or D.L. Moody or evangelists of today, some people seem to have a very special gift, and God seems to work with them that when they preach, people respond and come to Christ. But we've just also read that besides the gift of evangelism, there is a command to evangelism, to evangelize, that comes to all of us. Each one of us is given, every believer is given the task of sharing his or her faith. So we don't expect to hear a special call from God. The call has already been given. And let's look what the Holy Spirit might want to teach us this morning as we look briefly at this call upon the life of one of his mightiest prophets, as, as uh, Kevin said, Isaiah. We have an event that takes place in the year 740 B.C. We know this because it's the year in which King Uzziah dies, and we know that was 740 B.C. And I'm going to break the passage down into a few parts and draw out some of the things that I think are important here. The first section in, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6 is about the re revelation of the holiness of God. Is it possible that our view of God today has become blunted and even tainted? I hear people today speak of God as though he were Father Christmas, some genial genie in a bottle, some friendly neighbor or a pal or a mate. We must ask God to give us a true picture of who he really is, or we're going to get nowhere in our Christian lives. God is holy. Holiness means to be totally different, to be totally other. And holiness is God's fundamental attribute. All other attributes are subordinate to his holiness. That's why we talk about his holy love, his holy wrath, his holy will. Everything about God is fundamental, is, is based upon his holiness. Everything connects back to it. It would not be a bad idea, I suggest, that to, for you to memorize verses 1 to 4 or have them open in your Bible when you go to pray and read those verses before you start praying. So you get in your mind a picture of exactly who it is you're praying to. I believe it would change the way we pray. Sometimes I think we close our eyes to pray and find ourselves praying to a being that bears no resemblance at all to the God of the Scriptures but rather to a much more tolerant, somehow more intimate, all-too-human God. Nothing like the God of Isaiah chapter 6. But I, Isaiah sees the Lord, high and exalted and seated on a throne. Who is he seeing? Well, I, my personal belief is that he is here seeing God the Son. Jesus before his Bethlehem birth, the pre-incarnate Jesus. I say that for two reasons. Number one, the word Lord is spelt capital L, small o, small r, small d in your Bible. And that's the word master or king. If it was capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that would be Yahweh. That's the word that is used for Yahweh, Jehovah. And that's not the word that is used here. Also, John says in his writings that no man has seen God at any time, referring to God the Father. 
Remember, Moses said, God, show yourself to us. And God said, I'm not going to do it. And Moses got a brief glimpse of the back of God, as it were, as he fled, as Moses looked around the mountain and God disappeared. No man has seen God the Father at all time. I, str- I strongly believe that we may not ever see God the Father. He's just too big and too holy to look upon. So I believe Isaiah here sees the pre-incarnate Jesus. And around the throne that he's seated upon are these specific creatures, these created angelic beings with a specific task in the governance of heaven. The two wings cover their eyes, that they cannot look upon the face of God. Even these angelic beings, the most highly uh, decorated beings in heaven, they even can't look upon God. How do we think that we can do that? Two of their wings cover their feet. We know that very often when, when people come into the presence of God, we see Moses, for example, at the, at the burning bush, where he's instructed by the voice of God to take off his shoes, take off his sandals, for the place he is standing is holy ground. The covering of the feet is an acknowledgement that they are merely created beings and they're unworthy to walk upon that holy ground. And I think when we pray, we need to, as it were, take off our shoes and realize that in that moment of prayer, as we address the holy God, we're in a very, very holy place. And they have two wings to fly because this is not all that they do. They do other things as well. They have other tasks in the economy of heaven, so they have to move from place to place. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy. This is known as the trisagion, the three times holy. And it's only used here and in Revelation chapter 4. It's only used of the word holy. We never hear God of love, 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 or trust, 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 or faithfulness, faithfulness. It's always holy, holy, holy. It's the only time an adjective is used three times. God is not just holy. He's not even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. What a vision. Why don't you read it occasionally as you go to prayer? Give your mind a picture of what God is like. In verse 5, we see Isaiah's reaction. He's not just one of the major prophets. He is the prophet of all prophets, the leader of leaders, a mighty man of God. He's not as many of the other prophets are, a common laborer, a farmer, anything like that. He's a respected statesman, and he has access to the royal house. He consorts with kings and with princes, and God uses him to speak to a number of other kings besides Uzziah, to the good king Hezekiah, to the evil king Ahab. And in this chapter of Isaiah's mighty work of prophecy, he tells us how he sees God and how he reacts to what he sees. And how does Isaiah react? Look at verse 5. Woe is me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I never fully realized the horror of what Isaiah was saying until fairly recently. Woe is me, I am ruined. The word used here, is the equivalent Hebrew word of the Greek words that Jesus used when he pronounced woe and judgment upon the Pharisees on a number of occasions. Isaiah here is calling on God to destroy him, to decimate him, because he doesn't feel worthy to be there. 
The theologian, the late R.C. Sproul, puts it this way. Isaiah's use of the word woe is extraordinary. When he saw the Lord, he pronounced the judgment of God upon himself. Woe is me. He is calling down the curse of God and the utter anathema of judgment and doom upon his own head. It was one thing for a prophet to curse another person in the name of God, but it is quite another for a prophet to put that curse upon himself. And when he says, I am ruined, he doesn't mean, well, I'm ruined, I've lost my job. He doesn't mean, I'm ruined, I've I've lost my home. But he has come apart at the seams, literally. He's unraveled what the psychologist might call his personally disintegrating here. And remember, this is Isaiah, this man of integrity, of honor. And I believe this is exactly the response of any man or woman who claims to have seen the full glory of the holy God. When one truly sees God as he is, the response is not immediate and ecstatic praise, but groveling abhorrence at one's own sin and unworthiness. And you read this in the life of Luther, or David Brainerd, or Robert Murray McShane. The first two of the Beatitudes are Beatitudes of of agony. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are men and women who know their sinfulness and weep over it. I fear we have a picture sometimes in our minds of a God who is is not the God of the Bible, holy, perfect, pure, and awesome. And my prayer for all of us is that we might be able to understand and see God as he really is, not as modern media, even Christian media, paint him to be, as some kind of benign spirit, some grandfatherly old man who wants to bounce us up and down on his cosmic lap, or a distant universal ruler who capriciously deals with his creation as his whims take him. We need to learn to see God as Isaiah sees him, as David sees him in the Psalms, as Paul sees him in his letters. And then when that happens, we begin to see ourselves as we really are, hopeless and helpless sinners, saved only by the grace of this awesome God who sees nothing in us worth saving, But he saves us anyway, at the greatest possible cost, the sacrifice of his son. And when we see ourselves as we really are, and we repent of our sin, something happens. And it's illustrated here dramatically to us. Verses 6 and 7, we see the holiness of God almost here made personal. One of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched it to my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Wow. Think about that for a minute. God responds to Isaiah's cry of repentance by sending an angel to do something pretty painful. Now, we don't know whether this was actually physical cleansing pain or something like it. We don't know. I don't think it was an actual coal that actually touched his tongue because Isaiah wouldn't have been able to speak ever again. It would have burnt his mouth so badly. And we know that Isaiah goes on to have a, a ministry of speaking. But there's some way in which this very painful experience is an experience of cleansing. Isaiah knows what has happened, you see. He knows that God has heard his confession. He knows that God has cleansed his sin. 
at the point of his worst confessed sin, the sin of speaking, the sin of the tongue. What about today then? How does this work today? How does God deal with our sin today? There are no angels sent to us with tongues of fire from the, from the altar. So what happens? Well, I think there's two things briefly worth noting. The specific sin mentioned here is Isaiah's sin of the mouth, sin of the tongue. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I sometimes think that our most venial sin, the most serious sin that we ever commit, is the sin we commit with our voice. The things we say or the things we omit to say. James, for example, the the brother of our Lord, the half-brother of our Lord, in his letter says this from chapter 3, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a tiny spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Those are hard words. I believe that it is this very point of what we say and what we fail to say that God's disapproval and judgment is most keenly felt. Have we said anything this week that we regret? A word that has passed our lips that we wish we could take back? Maybe an unpleasant word, maybe an inappropriate word, maybe something we said to somebody that we shouldn't have said, maybe some unfair criticism, maybe we passed on some gossip, maybe some profanity. Maybe just some moaning and groaning and all that kind of stuff. Or have we failed to say something that we should say? Have there been occasions when we should have said something we kept quiet? That's the sin, I believe, that's being talked about here. But there's cleansing for that sin, as we see. It's already been provided by Christ on the cross. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us. There's that word, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ on the cross goes through that fire. He goes through that hellish pain and death. And the blood flows from his wounds. He experiences in human form almost the abandonment of the Father so that we don't have to. So there is cleansing. In verse 8, the first part of verse 8, we hear another word. From God. And listen to how this works. Now and only now, only at this point, verse 8, does Isaiah hear God speaking. After the vision of the glory of God, after our realization that our unworthiness and desperate sinfulness, after this genuine cry of repentance, and after God's cleansing of our hearts, only now does God's call upon our lives become clear. What is this call? Verse 8, first part. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I ask you this morning, have you heard this call from the Lord? If you say, no, I haven't, then I would submit that you have not yet experienced God as you can and ought to. You've not fully seen your own helplessness and your own sinfulness before God. And you've not fully repented of your sin. And thus you've not experienced the wonderful cleansing of God's forgiveness. That's why you've not heard God's call. 
God does not call men or women or young folk who are not fully committed to him. If you say, yes, I've heard that call, then I would say to you, why are you so silent? When are you going to step up and give him your all and not just your spare time? Isaiah responds to the call of God. This is a wonderful, wonderful little verse. God says to him in, the second, in, the, in verse 8 again, who, who, who will I send? Who's going to go for me? Isaiah says these simple words, Here am I, Lord, send me. Not here am I, Lord, send my pastor. Here am I, Lord, send my wife. She's good at this kind of thing. Here am I, Lord, send my kids. They've got much more youth on their side than I have. Isaiah says, no, send me. You can never be too young or too old to hear and respond to God's call. The oldest among us can still pray. We can still write letters. We can still make phone calls and witness to what God has done for us for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. I'm glad in the sense that we have a rather typical evangelical church. We have a steady, glowing, growing congregation, slowly growing. We have a plethora of activities that we have, uh, good worship opportunities. We have from our pastor some good preaching and teaching. But what is the other way in which we are absolutely typical of an evangelical church in this country? I would suggest to you it is this, that 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. Why is this? Is this because we have too few genuine believers, far fewer than we think? Or do we have too many believers who are just not responding to the call of God on their lives? And finally, the message that God wants Isaiah to give. I need to read just a bit of that again. So it's Isaiah 6, reading from verse, uh, verse 9. Just get the gist of it. I'm not going to read it all. God then says to Isaiah, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. What a terrible negative message. Isaiah is not there to give them good news at this point in his ministry, but he's to give them the news that they are going to be judged they are going to be terribly judged and cut off for a time from the Lord. The question is, what about today? What is our message? Is this our message for today? Well, the answer to that, of course, is yes and no. No, it's not our message today, but simply because it's not the whole message. We have a very positive cast to our message today because Christ has come and he has died and he has broken the chains and bonds of sin. So we have a positive message. But yes, we have a message that may be perceived as being negative as well. We are to indict our world of its sinful attitudes and actions. We're to call out the world for its rebellion against God. Most people are less ignorant than they are deliberately rebellious against God. They hate God and the things of God. They simply do not want to know. We need to stand up and say things about this. Abortion is running wild in this country. Over the next 12 months, another 250 young innocent babies will be slaughtered. 
and nobody will blink an eyelid. Sexual ethics are totally unbiblical. They're just everywhere. And nobody says a word. The prayer and Bibles is banned from so many public places. You're not allowed to pray or read the Bible in a school in public unless it's a certain type of service. So sometimes our message may be, may be a difficult message. There may be some things we need to say that are not that palatable. So let me finish. Do we want to be a part of growing this church? What's preventing us? What's preventing me from getting on with the work of personal evangelism? I would suggest from the research that's been done that there are a few things that, and one of these might be your particular issue. The first reason why people don't evangelize personally is because they have what is called the professional pastor mentality. It's not my job. Evangelism should not be done within the walls of the church except by one man. That's his job. Let him get on with it. Or we have a special evangelism committee. That's their job. Let them get on with it. That's why we don't evangelize. We don't think it's our job. The second is a kind of negative outlook on evangelism. People say, and I've heard them say this, well, it's just not going to work, is it? People are just not going to get converted today. The world is just too evil. Well, I would suggest to you, the apostles in the early church faced the same thing. Yes, many were converted, but most weren't. And as the years have gone by, the number of people being converted, except in times of great revival, has been fewer and fewer and fewer. Evangelical, born-again, Bible-believing the Christians in this country make up around about 1% of our population. But that's, that's the way it is. That's the way the world is under the judgment of God. So we can't stop that. Uh, make that stop doing evangelism. I think the most common is probably fear. Lack of, just lack of courage. How often is it the case that we're just too afraid to start a conversation with someone. Sometimes this seems like a, a constant battle for us. But the question we must ask is, well, what is it that we're afraid of? Are we afraid that what people will think of us? Are we afraid of that we'll get ridiculed or mocked? Maybe a door will get slammed in our face or we'll get rejected. For many of us, it may just be that we're afraid of the awkwardness of talking to a lost person, or maybe afraid of failing, not being successful in converting somebody. And all of these things keep us from doing the work we need to be doing for the Lord. And if that's your fear, then I'd love to talk to you about it. I really, really, really would. Maybe it's a lack of knowledge. I don't know enough to evangelize. I just don't know enough. All you need to know to share the gospel is the gospel. And the gospel can be summarized in several sentences. And you can learn that, and we can share that with you. Most of you would know that very clearly. Sometimes we, the lack of knowledge is about, we're assuming that this person we want to talk to is going to ask us a question that we're not going to be able to answer. We're going to get caught out. But I believe if we're reading and studying the Bible as we should, there are very few questions that are going to catch us out. And if we do get a question that we don't have an immediate answer to, we can always say, you know, you got me there just for a minute, but I'm going to go away and I'm going to find that answer for you. Don't go anywhere. 
I've got people I can speak to. I've got a book I'm going to read. And I will find you that answer. Some people say, I'm just too busy. I just don't have the time for this personal evangelism. Let me tell you what my experience is. It may not be yours. We always make time in our schedule for those, thing we, those things we think most important. We always make time in our schedule for those things we think most important. Whether it's supporting a football team or doing some kind of hobby or visiting family or whatever it might be, those things that are really important, we always make time for them. We need to make time for evangelism. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is God's will for me to give the gospel to the, most, to the lost important? Is it really important that I do something for God in terms of sharing my faith? Is his work really something I've committed myself to? If we make giving the gospel to someone important, a priority, then you'll see the difference. Plan to do it on a weekly basis. And the final thing I think I need to say here is that I have met those, not here, except on one occasion here. Somebody who said, well, I just don't want to evangelize. What can you say to a person who understands the obligation that they have to share the gospel and are unwilling to do it? I believe there's only one response to that excuse, and that is repent. If one agrees that Christ gives this command to every Christian and then willfully defies it by saying they just don't want to do it, there can be no other response. Next week I'm going to talk even in much more practical terms using another Old Testament passage to help you to build up the energy, the focus, the compassion to share your faith. And, but please don't wait until then. What about this week? Is there someone you can speak to and just share a seed of the gospel? Denise and I are beginning to get our neighbors round uh, one by one just for uh, evening barbecue or something, or just for a chat. And as we begin to share with them, a lot of them are new neighbors. Um, over time, not immediately, but over time, we build those relationships. These four couples we're thinking of, we begin to share the gospel with them. They turn us down and they run us out of town. Well, you know, that's okay too. God bless you as you commit your life to him. And you share your wonderful faith with those around you. May God bless your ministry. Shall we pray? Father, we ask you to give us a vision of yourself, first of all. That we may see you as you really are and then see ourselves for what we are. And know that but for your wonderful grace, we are nothing. We're ruined. We're falling apart. But in your grace and your mercy, you've changed our lives around. And Lord, impart to our souls, our very souls, the desire to share this faith with others. Family, friends, work colleagues, let us not be silent. Let us not be of unclean lips, though we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Let us stand up for you and share your wonderful gospel, even this week. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.